This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Well, I might go do industry if I'm feeling a little spicy. So, listeners, when your PI says, I don't actually think you should go to that training session, you just say, I'm sorry. It says that you must accommodate. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn why PhD programs should study themselves and what you can learn from the data they collect. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 153. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello there, Dan. Josh, what is happening? We're back into the, we're back into the groove. You're in the studio. I'm in a studio. Not in the same studio yet, but I feel like that week you were gone threw me off. Well, now we're back in the the pandemic groove at least, where we're on Zoom and doing that. Uh, but maybe we are approaching a time when we can record in person in the next few months. Maybe. Yeah, I am. I've signed up for vaccines everywhere that is possible to sign up for them. And I, I'm not yet qualified, but I wanted to be high on the list the moment I am qualified. Well, I was fortunate enough to get my second dose uh, yesterday. I should have been an educator. I know, Dan. Should have been a state employee like me. But, you know, it's not all fun and games. My arm is a little sore. I was slightly inconvenienced when I had to roll over in the night because my arm was tender. Uh, allow me to play the world's <laughs> smallest violin for you, Josh. How's life on the outside? Is it is it pretty amazing? <laughs> you'll you'll get there, Dan. You'll get there. Yeah, it's it's coming fast. Uh, Dan, I'm excited because warm weather has arrived, and we have a beer that I think is worthy of the change of seasons. Tonight, we are sampling the Sippy Cup Blueberry and Lemon American Wheat Ale from Dirty Bull Brewing Company right here in Durham, North Carolina. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows this about Durham, but because of the movie Bull Durham, and I guess it's Bull Durham Tobacco, right? Is that where it originally came from? I think the so. Name Bull Durham? I think so. Yeah. So everything in Durham is called something bull. And in this case, the brewery is Dirty Bull. And I have been to this this place, and I I sat at a picnic table outside, and it was a lovely experience back when humans congregated. But uh, happy that you brought this one back, Josh. It's a wheat ale. You know what it comes closest to for me is some of our sour beers, but it is not quite as sour. Yeah, you know, you're right. I wouldn't have thought that, but I'm not normally a fan of sour beers. But this one tiptoes right up to that line of being a sour beer, without becoming off-putting to me. And I got to say, this one's a home run for me. I could sit on the deck on a nice spring evening and enjoy the heck out of this one. Uh, very refreshing. This is a 5.5% alcohol, so it's a mid-gravity to low. Someday you'll be sitting with friends and, and enjoying one of these, or you'll mow the lawn and come inside and, and have one of these. Great beer for the, I think it was 80 degrees today, so... Would you enjoy uh, drinking the sippy cup out of a sippy cup? I think it'd be worth trying. If it weren't a podcast, if you could actually see us do it, it would be worth trying. You probably have a few of those at the house still, don't you, Dan? We, I still have sippy cups hidden in a cabinet. All right. That'll be for our Patreon-only content. <laughs> Just kidding. It won't be. <laughs> Speaking, Dan, of things we're thankful for, we are thankful for our friends at Promega. Sometimes when you're in grad school, it seems impossible to take any time for yourself. You're burning the candle at both ends. 
too many irons in the fire. You're juggling too many metaphors at the same time. Well, the Promega Student Resource Center recently launched a new section focused on helping you balance the demands of research with your overall wellness. A healthy mind and body are crucial for accomplishing your scientific goals, as well as living a full and enriched life. You can visit promega.com slash HelloPhD to learn more. And if you work with human or mouse sequencing data, uh, we want you to know that BioBox Analytics offers end-to-end data analytics for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Leverage non-code bioinformatic pipelines, generate publication-ready plots at the click of a button, and consolidate insights from popular public databases. Sign up for the waitlist and be the first to gain early access to your free BioBox account at biobox.io. I want to say, Dan, too, I know we read these, but the people at Promega and BioBox, cool, cool people. Yeah, yeah, we found some we found some really excellent uh, companies to work with with great staff. So we are very thankful for their support. All right, Dan, why don't we get into our topic of the week? All right, Dan, I had a chance this week to talk to Dr. Patrick Brandt, who is Director of Career Development and Training at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And as full disclosure, he is one of my colleagues um, at UNC that I work with. Makes it convenient. Now, you two didn't actually get together for this conversation, did you? We did not. Under normal times, his office is like three doors down from mine. But uh, I don't know that I've seen Patrick in person for... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for a few months. Quite a while. <laughs> yeah. But I do know that Patrick has done a lot of really cool work, including research on professional and career development of biomedical graduate students. And he's also been really involved in this movement of of graduate programs, actually collecting data on where their trainees go once they graduate. You might be surprised to learn that it wasn't that many years ago where a lot of programs if you ask them, hey, what do your grad students normally go do after graduation? They probably had no idea and couldn't tell you, which is kind of a scary thought if you think about it. If, if I can't see them, they're all fine, <laughs> all those graduate students that left here. It's like, it's, that's the way I parent too, Josh. If I can't <laughs> see them, they're fine. Well, the reason we wanted to talk to Patrick uh, for this episode is he recently wrote an essay for Inside Higher Education called PhDs Benefit When Universities Track Metrics and Outcomes. And we will link that article in the show notes. It's really great. It's a quick read. But we wanted to talk to Patrick a little more about why he wrote this essay and why it's beneficial for graduate students to know about it. All right. I'm ready to listen. I'm uh, Patrick Brandt. I'm the Director of Career Development and Outreach at the UNC Chapel Hill in the Office of Graduate Education. I've been in this uh, position for a little over 11 years now. Very cool. So, Patrick, the reason we wanted to talk to you today is you wrote a really cool essay in for Inside Higher Ed that just came out recently where you were talking about, actually, the title is PhDs Benefit When Universities Track Metrics and Outcomes. And we are going to talk a little bit about what those specific metrics and outcomes are and why they're beneficial to folks out there who are in graduate school. But before we get into that, we're going to focus a lot on careers today. That's what you think a lot about. I mean, that's what this article is about. But think back, Patrick, I know it's probably been a few years since you were in graduate school. It's been a few years since I was in graduate school, too. 
What do you remember about the career climate when you started grad school? Can you remember what were you thinking and what were your classmates thinking about their careers post-grad school back then? Yeah, I remember. um, So I started grad school in 2002 and I loved science and just was kind of following this love of science inertia path toward grad school. I didn't, hadn't really considered that much what the career options would be. And I just kind of figured, well, the only thing that I really knew was that people who have a PhD work in academia. And so when I started grad school, that was kind of my mindset. I figured I was, um, you know, there to learn about science and do neat research and follow my passion. And uh, something would work out as far as career. And I just figured that it would be uh, in academia. And honestly, I don't know how many of my peers felt the same way. I think probably many of them did. But there were not very many options for learning about anything other than an academic position uh, at the university where I was studying. And I got a great education, but that was one thing that was was missing. Yeah, you know, I can remember, I don't know if you remember this too, but back, I think I was in training around around the same time that you were. And the alternate career option was industry. <laughs> you know, you would think, oh, well, I might go do industry if I'm feeling a little spicy. You know, I might say that I'm going to do that instead of academia. But but those were really the options. There wasn't there wasn't much beyond that. Yeah, I agree, Josh. And I would, just to, to follow up on that a little bit, I remember realizing that I didn't really want to follow in the same footsteps as my PI, even though he was a great guy. But I remember that he would come in in the morning sometimes and tell us about the dreams he had had about the research projects and, and <laughs> or the, the future of, of the lab. And that really wasn't what appealed to me. I, I didn't, couldn't see myself dreaming about my research. I mean, I loved my research, but I was uh, not sure that I could, uh, that I could measure up to that. Um, and so that was, that started getting me thinking, uh, whether I wanted to stay in academia with it being such a high pressure and publish or perish and, and need the need for grants. And so I really didn't know what the options were. I, like you, kind of thought, oh, well, industry is the only other option. But none of us really knew what that meant uh, of the peers that I spoke with. In, in many regards, it was looking like the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. And so industry must be have all the benefits that we were seeing the deficiencies of in academia. And so I went on to a postdoc thinking that I would be, that I was preparing myself for a career in industry, but I still really didn't know what that meant. I had never talked to anybody in industry. I had never done a site visit and I didn't really have any idea how to prepare for a position in industry either. Yeah. You know, that highlights for me a little bit how stressful that was because I can really identify with that. And I think a lot of trainees back in our day, I mean, some trainees now, but I think a lot of us came to that realization that we didn't want to do the same things that our advisors did. We didn't want to run a lab at a research institution, but then there was this big unknown, you know, with anything that was not that. And so it almost felt like a risk, right. To even think about pursuing something else because it was such a black box And I think one thing that's great, and that's what we're going to shift gears and talk about now, is that things have changed quite a bit from the time that that you and I were doing our training. And one of the things that that you talked about in your article was you mentioned that a tipping point to a certain degree was in 2012 when the National Institutes of Health 
came out with a biomedical research workforce working group report. Can you tell me a little bit about that working group report that the NIH put out and why that has been really, why that was really important in moving the needle on trainee career and professional development opportunities? Yeah. So when that report was commissioned, um, it was kind of, it was at the beginning when a lot of people were questioning a lot of people in higher education and at the NIH uh, and faculty too, you know, grad school deans were beginning to question whether we were really serving the graduate students well. And one of the big problems was that there were these lots of assumptions about where students were going, but nobody had really any data or any firm idea of what the career outcomes were of students up to that point. Uh, and one of the pressures that was on the system was that NIH funding, so with that increasing NIH funding for research, which is a great thing for our society, it meant that the number of grad students had, had increased over the decades. Um, and so there just wasn't, an, there were way more PhD graduates than there were positions in industry, or excuse me, in academia. And so like many decades ago, it was common that the majority of graduates would go into academic positions, but with the increase in the number of grad students and, and graduates, then that just wasn't possible anymore. But there was still a lot of, there was still an assumption among the faculty at most research one institutions that the majority of the graduates were going on to academia, or at least there was also this pervasive uh, opinion that the best candidates or the best graduates were going on to academia. And so that was part of the culture that needed to change. And so a big thing that of what the biomedical workforce report did was it actually gave, there was a data collection piece of that. Um, and many people were very surprised to learn that I can't remember exact the exact number, but it was between 15 and 25% of graduates they found that were actually in tenure track positions. If you had asked uh, most faculty members, they probably would have said it was, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80%. <laughs> and, and so it was just an eye-opening experience. And a big one of the big conclusions of that report was that graduate programs have an obligation to provide more well-rounded training that would allow graduates to be able to be successful in careers outside of academia since the vast majority were not going into academia. And so so you're saying that really the vast majority, if not all, uh, PhD programs at that time, and, and we're not talking about the, the Stone Ages here either. I mean, we're talking about a decade ago, <laughs> right? That programs really they didn't know where their alumni were going once they graduated. And maybe they kept up they kept up well with the ones who went on and got faculty jobs at peer institutions, but otherwise they didn't have a really clear picture at all of where their grad students were going after they left. That's exactly right. Even as recently as five years ago, most institutions, there were a few that were on the vanguard of tracking this, but not many at all. All right, Patrick. So this obviously seems like it's a problem. And and certainly as we fast forwarded, and you talk about this in your article, we've made a lot of progress really quickly in remedying some of this uh, uncertainty about where biomedical trainees are going. So you mentioned in your article this coalition of institutions 
that are working hard to do better themselves, but also advocate for change more broadly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that was in 2017, and there were 10, insti- 10 founding institutions in the Coalition for Next Generation Life Sciences. So now there are more than um, 39 institutions that have signed on to the responsibilities or the um, commitments that are outlined by the Coalition for Next Generation Life Sciences. And really those relate to reporting in an open way on websites that are publicly available uh, information about the demographics of the cohort of current students. So that would be the percentage of male and female, uh, the time, the average time to degree by department uh, at those institutions uh, to the PhD, to earning the PhD, um, completion rates, uh, number of international students, like percentages of international students. Uh, also, and there are also metrics that are being re- that are reported by all of the institutions on their postdoc training populations. But um, so there are both metrics related to the current students, and then a big part, and the part that I focused on in the or in the essay that I wrote for Inside Higher Education is on the impetus to track and report uh, alumni career outcomes. So let me ask you this. Patrick, why? So these thirty-nine institutions now, and you know, why are they doing this? Why? Why is reporting? Well, we could talk about why is reporting outcomes important. Certainly, it's important for the trainees to have information about, you know, when you're deciding on a program. Well, where do the alumni from this program actually go? You know, does it sound like they're going places that I might want to go if if I go into this training program? But what's the impetus for these institutions to? to collect these data and to try to get a better handle on what their trainees are doing? Yeah, I think that there are a few different reasons that institutions do it. One is that they see a moral obligation to, uh, like they often speak about truth in advertising. So uh, being truthful uh, to applicants that are applying about what their time investment is going to give them. Um, so that's one reason, just the moral reason, and it's the right thing to do. Another one is <laughs> the fact that in most professional programs for decades, like med schools, law schools, other terminal degrees, they've been doing this for a long, long time. And for some reason, it never really transferred over to the life science PhD graduate programs. Uh, and so there's a bit of catching up to do uh, and expectation among uh, savvy potential trainees. The third one is that it really, the, the culture has changed so much in the last 10 years and from my point of view, that now institutions that offer career development and, and career exploration programming and that can point to their alums being in a, a wide variety of different careers are actually at an advantage in recruiting new uh, new PhD students to their programs. And so um, I would say that the third reason uh, is incentivize or to draw in the some of the best and most savvy uh, applicants to their programs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I know that very well, you know, being involved on the admissions side of, of biomedical graduate training. Applicants these days are very savvy, and a lot of them are coming in looking for programs that offer those opportunities. In addition to being able to do great science in the lab, they want to know, 
Am I going to have opportunities to explore my career um, at this institution? And that's a real change over the last 10 years, certainly, but you're right, even over the last five years. I don't remember as many applicants outwardly looking for that. And it's a really great thing that that it exists in enough places that they can ask for that and think to ask for that. So I see that as a real positive. Okay, so one one thing that I wanted to talk about that you mentioned in your article is you said a few years back the federal government, and I'm going to quote from your, your essay, you said that the federal government officially noted that any student or postdoc funded on any federal research grant must be allowed work time to engage in their career and professional development. No longer could research advisors require lab members paid by research grants to devote 100% of their time to research activities. So just to be clear, this is uh, this is still true, right? I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I think it, it it's worth repeating here. Yes, it definitely is. It definitely is still true. So this was... This came out, I believe, in 2014, maybe, or 2013. And it's, uh, it's a, it, from the Office of Management and Budget, which is over all of the institutions. It's over at the NIH. It's over the NSF. It's over the Department of Defense. Uh, and so any trainee that's funded on federal dollars is, uh, need, it, it is guaranteed time to pursue career and professional development as part of their training. And so that's called the, it's called the dual role of students and postdoctoral staff. So it refers to both grad students and postdocs. I love that because there's a debate that I feel like comes up from time to time about the role of graduate students and and postdocs even, where are they, are they students? Are they trainees? Or are they employees? And, you know, I mean, at its heart, I mean, they're trainees. We call them trainees. Graduate students are called students, right? They pay tuition. And framing that experience that a graduate student has in a lab, um, a training experience can be thought about fundamentally uh, in a different way than being just an employee. There are different things that come along with that. And this sounds to me like the federal government um, in the United States taking a stand and saying, yeah, there is more that we need to allow these trainees to do. We need to recognize they are trainees, and there's more to it than having them just go in and fulfill the obligations of this research grant. So I feel like what the what this OMB rule was doing is it was pushing back on the idea that some faculty had that they've earned these grants from NIH, and so since they earned since they were awarded these research grants. They can define what uh, the trainees, how much time the trainees need to be spending or what percentage of the time the trainees need to be spending on uh, career professional development versus being in the lab. And there were definitely some faculty members, we've all heard the stories of that they thought that 100% of the time need uh, that the student was paid on this research grant needed to be um, at the bench doing research or at the computer doing research. Uh, and what this is, what this does, is it pushes back on that idea, and it says that no NIH is funding these trainees, and therefore um, they are going to carve out time for career and professional development. So, Patrick, let me ask you this. So, first of all, I think that's fantastic. I think it shows a lot of, I guess, a lot of awareness at some of the key key workforce challenges that were faced by by trainees who are doing the work on these grants. But to what degree do you think or have you observed that this this federal message is actually being absorbed in practice 
from a lab to lab basis. So, so for example, if I'm a graduate student in a lab uh, working on working under a research grant, a federal research grant, I mean, I mean, do you feel like PIs are out there saying, "Oh, well, I know because you're a trainee under this federal research grant, I'm going to make sure you have time for career exploration and development." Uh, do you feel like that's actually happening? in most cases for students. And then I want to also ask you, what if a trainee feels like they're not getting that? Do they have any recourse? So first of all, I don't think that the OMB rule, I don't think that many people know about the OMB rule. And so I try to bring it up whenever I can, uh, which is why I put it in the essay. But I also think that what's more effective is the culture change that has really, that can be traced back to the NIH uh, and the and the policy changes that they've made to things like T32 programs, uh, and even more more broadly, um, R01s, where there was a mandate that anybody who's funded on an R01 needs to have an individual development plan. Now that didn't go quite as NIH had hoped, but things like that change the culture, and that helps institutions and department chairs and directors of graduate study see the NIH is serious about rewarding institutions that uh, are looking at a more holistic view of training the graduate students instead of just an apprenticeship model, where the assumption is that all the grad students are going on to academia. So, so really what you're saying is that over time, the consequences for, for not doing these things are potentially your R01 isn't going to get funded, or certainly your T32 might not be nearly as competitive as your peer institution who's providing lots of opportunity for career and professional development. That's exactly right. And the money speaks more than the than an obscure OMB rule. <laughs> that is certainly true. Uh, so I think the last thing I want to talk about is I want to shift gears to you a little bit. And I know you have done a lot of work at uh, UNC Chapel Hill to to institute a lot of these initiatives uh, where you are. And you've collected a lot of data on where graduate students went after their PhD. You know, tell us a little bit about the work that you've done and what you think the impact has been at your institution. Yeah, um, so it's been a lot of fun to get involved in this project. And so we have pretty meticulously tracked down all of the life science PhD graduates from UNC Chapel Hill since the year 2000, which is uh, about 16 or 1700 uh, PhD alums. And I, I just want to be, I just want to be clear, Patrick, uh, two of those are Dan and myself. <laughs> yes, that's right. And we have, <laughs> we have information on where you're located and how successful you've been. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We're dragging the data down. Do you have a do you have a podcast host uh, pie slice on your on your outcome graph? <laughs> it's it's very small, but yes, it's in there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Sorry, go ahead. So um, we there's a website uh, where we have an interactive dashboard where anybody, any student or current student or uh, applicant or um, faculty member can go and look at exactly what the breakdown is for where our uh, alums have ended up and it's it's broken down into three different tiers so there's a uh, a job function tier which has very granular information about the day-to-day functions uh, there's about I don't know maybe 20 or so uh, bins for that job function but then there's a career sector sector and a job type higher level distinction and 
So the thing that I think is interesting is that when you take out the postdocs that uh, are currently, the, the alums that are currently in postdoctoral training and just look at the UNC alumni, PhD alumni who are in non-training positions, 39% of them are in academia and of one kind or another. That's not necessarily all tenure track faculty, but that would actually include both you and uh, it would include you, Josh, as you're uh, in academia, um, even though you're not a, on a tenure track position. But um, so that's 39%. 41% of our graduates are in the for-profit sector. Uh, and then other smaller pie slices are in government, nonprofit and other positions that uh, don't fit into the academia and for-profit sector. So, um, and on this dashboard, you can filter by graduation year, you can filter by um, PhD program. Uh, and this part of our site gets a lot of visits. Uh, and so I think it's uh, a really interesting thing for alums to see or and for, for, for many people to see. Yeah, it's really cool. I imagine it can be really helpful for for faculty and others at the institution to utilize that data. That data is really powerful when applying for things like training grants. Uh, but then also, I know it's really appealing for applicants who are considering uh, coming to the institution for graduate school. They can really look at, here's where people go. Here are the opportunities available to me uh, when I leave this program. And and I think that's, that's really fantastic. So Patrick, this is all really cool. Um, I guess one last thing I, I do want to have you do. What advice do you have to current trainees who are out there with regard to their career and professional development during their training? Yeah, well, I guess the first one hopefully goes without saying, uh, and that is that you should devote, trainees should devote time to their own career and professional development from day one of their of their program, whether that's a prep program or a grad PhD program or a postdoc. Um, but be sure that you are carving out time in your week for um, networking, for reading up about different careers, for attending workshops that are offered either at your institution or there are a lot of virtual offerings as well. So that's the biggest one. And and don't be apologetic about it, but that but recognize that that is what's expected of you by NIH. And, and hopefully also by your um, training program directors. Um, that's, a, that's one big one. The other one that I would say is that is to look for the schools that have these dashboards and, and look through that information and then take advantage of the connections that have been made as a result of this initiative. So LinkedIn is a, a huge benefit. So I would also encourage all trainees to have a LinkedIn account, whether you're planning to stay in academia where LinkedIn is not quite as as widely used or whether you're planning to go on uh, to a career outside of academia. But LinkedIn can be really, uh, is a great tool for reaching out and for um, doing informational interviews and for career exploration, as well as for finding a job when you get to that point. Yeah, that's great, Patrick. And I want to make sure I mentioned, we will post a link to your Inside Higher Ed article um, in our show notes. And it is a great resource. Uh, one, I recommend everyone go read it. But also, there's a lot of great links in there to the Coalition for Next Generation Life Sciences, which will get you to a lot of those dashboards you're talking about, Patrick. And also, you posted some really helpful links for career exploration targeted at graduate students. So we'll make sure we post a link um, to that in the show notes. 
But thank you so much for, for taking time to talk to us. This is really cool work. It's really important work. And I appreciate you taking the time to share it with us today. Well, thanks, Josh. It's been fun. All right, Dan. That was my interview with Patrick Brandt. Well, thank you for doing it. I I don't think I appreciated Josh. We went to grad school in that weird in-between period. So 30 or 40 years ago and prior, everybody became a faculty member or drifted off. I, I just want to be clear. Wait, Dan, the way you said that made it sound like it was 30 or 40 years ago when we went no, to No, I'm saying school. up until <laughs> I, I'm, I'm about to approach the period where we went to school. Hold, hold on. Hold your horses. 30 or 40 years ago, everybody went on to a faculty position, or a lot of people did, or that was the expectation. And now I feel like there's a strong recognition that you're going to go into a, a wide variety of types of careers, into policy, into writing, into uh, teaching, into whatever. But when we were in school in that kind of middle period, we wanted to go do those other things, or we wanted to think about them. And it was just, nobody knew about it. Nobody could teach us about it. Uh, there weren't great training programs to help us get there. And so I'm so interested in knowing the kind of data that Patrick has collected, you know, shining a light into this period of, of transition about where we are now and what careers look like with a PhD. So, so one thing that came to mind, Dan, when you said that is think about our first year graduate school class. You know, if you can imagine those people who entered with us, I think there were like 20 of us or so. I mean, we we haven't kept up with all of them, but off the top of your head, you can kind of scan through what they're doing now. I mean, very few, if any of them, are faculty at large research a few, institutions. A handful. They're doing all a, a handful, but they're doing all sorts of different things. I think, I think the difference is we weren't necessarily told about any of those other things, and it was a much more stressful journey getting there, which involved even maybe feeling out of place or lesser than, or like you were taking a risk. Um, I, I mean, again, it was very much those, those careers that people were legitimately seeking up after graduation were alternative careers. They were seen as the alternative to what you really would be your primary focus. And that is becoming a faculty member. Um, but I think a big difference now is we actually know uh, what students are doing. Josh, do we have access to the data I know that you said for UNC it's accessible online, but how about the other universities? I'd be interested in knowing, in general, do some universities create more faculty? Do some universities create more writers? How do I find out about that? That Coalition for Next Generation Life Science that, that Patrick mentioned, those institutions, their goal is not only to collect these data, but to share them publicly. So I believe part of being in the coalition itself is that institutions are agreeing not only to collect this data about their trainees, but that they will publish this data and make it accessible on a publicly available website. And, you know, one reason that's great and, and one, one of the, uh, an impetus for doing that is to have more clarity and, and transparency when it comes to the next generation of grad students who might be looking at those programs that almost layers this imperative if we're bringing these students into our training programs, we should be able to give them actual information about where those training programs might lead them. So if you go to the, the website ngls.coalition.org and you click on the menu, 
one of the menu items right there is data. I'm, oh, I'm way ahead of you, Josh. While you were talking, I, I, found, I found those links, <laughs> and I clicked a random... So it lists each school, and then you can click through, and it takes you to the data for that school. I happened to click through to Texas A&M, and I've got bar charts. It's showing me upon graduation, 42% go into academia, 20% for-profit, 5% government, 2% get shot to the moon or whatever. But but anyway, the data is right there. So uh, I will put a link to that in the show notes so people can look at various schools, maybe one you're attending, maybe one you thought about attending or would like to. Yeah, and I would say even if you don't see a school on the list, I always tell trainees when they're and applicants when they're looking at programs, they're researching programs, ask program leaders, where do your students normally go after graduation? And if they don't know or they can't really tell you much about that, that could be a major red flag. There's a time to degree tab, Josh. And completion <laughs> rate. Oh, I've got medians. I'm in heaven. Okay, well, thank you, because that, that got me unstuck. I, I, I didn't realize I needed to go through the Coalition for Next Generation Life Science, but I will put the link to that so everybody can follow our, our path. You know, Dan, I can remember very clearly, uh, we were talking about our first year of graduate school, and I, I'd be curious if you remember this moment. It was towards the beginning of the year. I don't know. We were probably in our first rotation, and it was very much at the beginning. And I can remember being in this room with our program leader, the faculty who was the program leader. And I don't know why we were having this conversation, but the topic of of completion rate, the percentage of people who finished their PhD came up. And until that moment, I had never thought about it. To be honest, I had just thought, oh, I'm an undergrad. I discovered I liked research. I learned about grad school. I'm going to go to grad school. And here's a program I like. Great. And suddenly this question was posed by the program leader. Like, oh, did you realize only about 50% of PhDs who start a program finish? And that blew my mind. And it almost completely shook me. You do remember I that. I do. I, I remember because, you know, it's one of those experiences where you look to your left and to your right and neither of those people will be there or you won't. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say, looking back on that, I still don't totally buy that because knowing what I know now, I don't think any program really had the data to know for sure. Uh, so it's interesting to me on one hand that back then the perception was that only one out of every two grad students who started finished. I know now, Dan, in our program, because we keep that data, we're part of the coalition, not, over 92% of our graduate students who start finish with a PhD. Uh, I know I've seen data that the national average in the life sciences is about 65%, uh, but I, it's just hard for me to believe it was 50%, but the fact that we were told that <laughs> without really any data to back it up had more of a potential to do damage than anything else. I don't... I don't know. And the fact that it stuck with me, that moment, I remember, I don't know if we've discussed it, but the fact that you obviously remember that moment too uh, is shocking. So Josh, one of one of the things that Patrick has in his article that I don't think he got a chance to, to say uh, were, were the direct lines from the National Institutes of Health Biomedical Research Workforce Working Group report, this 2012 report that came out that had recommendations to change graduate training and, and looking forward to the next 10 years. And the direct quote is, graduate programs must accommodate a greater range of anticipated careers for students. Must accommodate. So listeners, when your PI says, I don't actually think you should go to that training session, you should say, I'm sorry. 
It says that you must accommodate <laughs> a greater range of anticipated careers. And it goes on. Are you saying every graduate student should actually keep a hard copy printed of the uh, yes. training? Uh, yeah, what's yeah. The document this is, this is your constitution that you keep in your back pocket or whatever. You need to be able to quote this. It goes on and offer opportunities. Remember, this is must accommodate a greater range of anticipated careers for students and offer opportunities for students to explore a variety of options while in graduate school without adding to the length of training. Drop the mic. So, this is your right, graduate student. And next time your PI says you don't have time for that extracurricular training, say, actually, I'm afraid you are mistaken. You must accommodate it, and you cannot lengthen my time of training. I'm not sure that this holds any legal water, but I I felt the language was very strong, and it made me feel very good to read it. Well, and that's why I'm glad we can talk about that because I think it's important that grad students know that this is out there because I don't think that uh, it's necessarily shouted from the rafters. But as Patrick stated, this is very much the viewpoint of the federal funding agencies in the sciences right now in the United States. Yeah. Well, so. special special thanks to Patrick for digging out those uh, obscure references and for pointing us toward the data. I think, you know, we make better decisions when we have more information. And so this is your chance as somebody applying to schools, or maybe you're in a school, or maybe you want to make recommendations for making your university better, starting out with what is actually happening right now is the only way to start out. What do you think, Dan, if we made some merch that had that quote on it? That's a great idea. (laughs) I think we made some we made some of those little uh, foam pipette or those foam tube floaties or some Eppendorf tube racks or something or t-shirts, lab coats that you could just have sitting around the lab. Yeah, casually. it's got to be the lab coat or it's, it's got to be some passive aggressive way for your PI to hear that <laughs> message. We can make one of those inspirational posters, you know, but we'd put the quote on there. You could hang it up it's in your lab. cat hanging from the uh, clothesline or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hang in there except yeah. for you must accommodate a greater range of anticipated careers for students i think it's a great idea josh we're doing I it i love it all right beyond that if you have any other great ideas or questions or topic ideas we would certainly love to hear them you can email us podcast at hellophd.com send us a tweet at hellophd if you like the show you can leave us a review on apple podcasts we love getting your feedback if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. If you're enjoying the show, share it with somebody in your lab or in your graduate program. That's how we spread the word. Embroider it on your lab coat next to the <laughs> other quote that we want to put there. <laughs> there you go. The lab, that lab, lab coat is are, getting really busy. Yeah, lab coats are going to look like NASCAR <laughs> uniforms pretty soon. It's going to be great. I mean, a lab coat a lab coat really is a blank canvas when you think about it. It's kind of a missed opportunity. Just waiting for advertising. All right, Josh. Well, those and other brilliant ideas coming at you next time, and we'll see you then. See you then.